Formal education does not always prepare as well for the unwritten rules of the workplace. In this episode, we discuss a new resource to support us in efficiently navigating professional environments. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning. This podcast series is hosted by John Kane, an economist, and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer, and features guests doing important research and advocacy work to make higher education more inclusive and supportive of all learners. Our guests today are Adara Landry and Risa Lewis. Adara is an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School. She is an entrepreneur, keynote speaker, and award-winning mentor. She co-founded Writing in Color, a nonprofit that teaches the craft of writing. Risa is a professor of emergency medicine, TEDMED speaker, Time's Up Healthcare founder, designer, entrepreneur, and award-winning educator, mentor, and point-of-care ultrasound specialist. She hosts the Visible Voices podcast, amplifying content in the healthcare equity and current trend spaces. Adara and Risa have written many articles together in CNBC, Fast Company, Forbes, Harvard Business Review, Nature, The Philadelphia Inquirer, Science, Slate, Stat News, Teen Vogue, Vogue, and USA Today. They have been quoted and featured in The Guardian, The Huff Post, The New Yorker, and The New York Times. They are the co-authors of Micro Skills, Small Actions, Big Impact, which is scheduled for release in April 2024 by HarperCollins. Welcome back, Adara and Risa. Thank you so much for having us. I'm excited to be here. Delighted, delighted, delighted. We're glad to talk to you again. Today's teas are, Risa, are you drinking tea? I am absolutely drinking tea. I am drinking Celestial Seasonings, True Blueberry. And I like not only the smell, I like the taste, I like the name, I like the feeling. And Adara? I am drinking chamomile. I love chamomile. And I'm trying to actually get more into green tea, which I hear is the healthiest type of tea out there. But I'm starting with just chamomile today. All those antioxidants. Right. That's exactly right. It's purely for health benefits. I'm trying to transition to exclusively green tea. Both of them sound nice and calming, for sure. I have Harsha, which sounds like the exact opposite of that. <laughs> which is a black tea, a very harsh black tea, apparently. It is not a harsh black tea. I can't do black tea. It is really harsh. It is so tasty. And I have a Republic of Tea Wild Blueberry Tea today, which is a black tea. I like that brand. Popular flavor this afternoon. So we invited you here today to discuss micro skills. Could you tell us a little bit about the origin of your book project? I'm happy to start. So Reese and I have been writing together for about three and a half years. We started with articles writing about our everyday struggles in the workplace. And we recognized that the things that we were facing in academia, in medicine, were widely applicable to a larger audience. Things like how to communicate, how to write a letter of recommendation for yourself, how to deal with workplace toxicity. And so those topics, even though we were encountering them in the healthcare setting, people were encountering them in education, in finance, in tech. And so we thought, what would be the next big thing? Like, Where do we go from here? And I've always wanted to write a book 
and I love writing with Risa. So it just seemed like an organic next step to pitch the idea to her. How about writing a larger project, a book together that is really focused on the workplace? And we still have the same philosophy of teaching the strategic how-to and using the voice that really is approachable and full of easy-to-implement tips. And what we found, as Adara said, is that what we experienced and what we see in medicine is actually exactly what our friends are seeing in other industries. And we found that we were able to write about the workplace in ways that spoke to many audiences, many industries, and we're both ambitious. And when she came to me with the offer and the idea, I said, I'm in. Can you talk a little bit about the intended audience? You've kind of hinted at your connection to the medical field, but also these wider audiences. I'm going to make a sports reference, and we're going to talk about the playbook. And for different reasons, and sometimes overlapping reasons, Adair and I have felt like we didn't get a copy of the playbook. And we certainly have been able to navigate this thing called academic emergency medicine, and we have a lot of accomplishments, but gosh, it definitely could have been easier if we had been told certain things, if we somehow got the inside scoop. And so the motivation was to provide that for everybody, to get there easier, get there sooner, get there in a way that everything, goals, tasks, habits, navigating the workplace just doesn't seem as hard. I was going to add, because a lot of people have asked if there is a specific audience we had in mind when we wrote the book. And Risa and I discussed upfront, do we want to write a book for just women or just physicians? And we found ourselves wanting to really capture that wider audience. And yes, we think this book is going to appeal greatly for those who are early in their careers, who really know very little about the workplace because they have limited experience. And also we have found that people who are more senior have benefited from a refresher reminding themselves of what others expect of them. And we've even heard some feedback that people are going to use this as a guide in how they mentor others. And even some of those who are later in careers, I think, can benefit from it. When Rebecca and I were working together in the teaching center, she saw some of the emails I sent out and her response was, I don't know why people even talk to you sometimes. (laughs) I don't know if you remember that conversation, Rebecca. I think that's a direct quote. (laughs) I think it was a direct quote. It was a few years ago. But having this type of book could be really useful for people in pretty much any career. In the introduction, you note that the characteristics of successful people are often wrongly considered innate traits rather than larger skills that can be dissected and learned in small pieces. Could you describe the range of topics that you address in this book? So we have 10 chapters and... We actually did a lot of beta testing, beta reading, brainstorming sessions, the two of us, and then we opened it up to some people from all different ages, stages, industries to see what resonated. And I'll just name those 10 chapters and that sort of will speak to the audience in that they'll understand really how comprehensive of a book this is. So we have micro skills for self-care, micro skills to manage a task list, Microskills for polished communication, microskills to build and maintain your reputation, microskills for becoming a subject matter expert, microskills to learn your workplace culture, microskills to be a team player, microskills to grow your network, microskills for navigating conflict, and finally, microskills to actively find new opportunities. Such a great list of 
categories of micro skills. Can you give an example of what some of those specific micro skills might be? Yeah, I want to open with chapter one, micro skills for self-care. And we purposefully put that at the front of the book because we think for anyone who wants to be better at work, they have to do this check-in or audit as far as who they are, how they take care of themselves, how much compassion they give to themselves, and just making sure that they feel like they're in a good spot as a person, as an individual, before they start moving into work and the team and all of those things. And so we really love that this chapter is at the beginning. And we open with nine micro skills for self-care. The first is to nourish relationships with people you trust, to really invest in those people, to recognize the value of gratitude and demonstrate appreciation of others. The third is to make yourself an award-winning sleeper. As physicians, we of course have a high emphasis on sleep and rest. Protect your ability to deliberately rest. And we talk about what deliberate rest means. Manage your personal finances. And we have a lot to say about that. Monitor your personal hygiene and physical health. And that was actually quite an interesting one to put in there because there's a lot about how someone appears that is very personal and sensitive. And it's a very controversial topic. So that was a really interesting one to dive into. Number seven is offload routine tasks that bring you no joy or purpose. Number eight is place and organize everything on a calendar. And then number nine is to set limits on time spent in meetings. I'd like to emphasize and underscore that one. (laughs) Almost all of these were born out of our own personal struggles or what has been told to us by other people directly or our observations of how we have seen other people thrive or struggle within the workplace. But it's not like any of it's just coming out of thin air. Like, what if this were a problem? It's all grounded in some form of reality that we have witnessed. And our approach is unique because there are many business self-help books out there. And when submitting a proposal and working with an editor, we had to give what we call comp titles. So there are plenty of books out there that talk about these things. What we know is different about this book is we break it down into these small steps, micro skills, and we tell people how. And I'll just take the example of developing subject matter expertise. That seems like huge. And people are like, I don't even know how to do that. How do you do that? And we break it down. And one example about which we wrote recently is collaboration and how collaborating with others can be a piece of building your own subject matter expertise. So we go into examples and we break each one down with providing critical actions that are actionable, they're discrete, they're specific, and they build upon each other. The other thing that's really important to underscore is that these are all presented as skills, things that are learnable and not just somehow something we're born with or are just supposed to somehow know, but it's something we can take steps to get better at and not just snap here today. We have this particular skill. That's exactly right. And early in your book, in terms of differentiating your book from other self-help or self-care books, you know that a lot of other books come from a perspective of privilege and may not work with a broader audience. Could you give us some examples of how you've tried to make your book relevant to a broad range of readers? John, I love that question. And no one has asked us that question yet. They've noted what you just noted, but they didn't ask how or maybe why. And so I think this comes from a place, and I'll speak personally, of 
having had the experience of not feeling like I belong, feeling like I'm the only, and I'm not denying the plenty of privilege that I bring to the table, but being super aware that all of these environments are not built for inclusivity and belonging and for everybody. And so one assumption that is made often in these books is that people have access to resources. And the specific resource I'm speaking about is money and wealth. And it's not said, but it's definitely assumed by the way these books are written or the way they talk about, well, just go do this. It assumes that you have access to a savings and checking account, that you have access to caretakers like parents who can give you money or who can support you or that you've somehow inherited financial knowledge that maybe you didn't inherit and you didn't have that kind of opportunity in the household in which you grew up. So financial is one assumption that we tried not to make. And that goes back to the why we told people how, because a lot of the books just assume, we'll just go out and get a financial advisor. Many people don't even know where to start. And the assumption is that must cost a lot of money. And the reality is it does not necessarily need to cost a lot of money. It may not cost any money. But again, we try to really come from our own experience or the experience of people that we love that are in our life. Or quite honestly, we're in the emergency department. We see the full breadth of society. Uh, people come at the worst days of their life. People sometimes come with like literally minor paper cuts the range. And so I think it keeps, I certainly know it keeps me sober. And I say that a lot and people are like, oh, and it's a figurative aspect to staying sober about not everybody comes from the same place or has the same access. And the other thing that we wanted to do was really reveal our vulnerability and our own lessons learned. We don't write from a place of, we know everything because we have never made a mistake. Well, that would be very untrue. I'm speaking personally for myself. I have made plenty of mistakes. And I would say that the book is really born out of the examples of how we have learned to be better communicators. And some of that is because we've made a mistake in the past and we're like, we should never make that mistake again. And we should also teach other people not to do the same thing. And so I think that level of vulnerability, that level of humility is woven throughout the book because I tell a story about how I gave a patient the wrong medication dose. And so that's like revealing a part of me that maybe someone else might want to hide. But I think showing that allows the reader to really understand that, yes, here are these two physicians trained at Harvard who are successful. Risa has a very successful podcast. I have a nonprofit. We have succeeded in various ways. And we have done that through making mistakes and learning lessons from it. I really love the transparency component and underscoring that piece of it and that making sure that you're not making some of those assumptions incredibly valuable and can't be underscored enough. You've hinted a little bit at some of the content of individual structures, but they all follow a common structure. Do you want to share a little bit about how each chapter is structured kind of on this thread of transparency? Love to. So as Adara spoke, we put ourselves into this book. So every micro skill and every chapter starts with a story, a vignette, and we switch back and forth who's speaking, whose story, and it's a real story. Some identifying features are changed, but they're based on real circumstances and we wrote them so you can tell it's our authentic voice. The goal of the story is to illustrate the micro skill. And after the vignette, 
there's an aspect where we talk about why is the skill important? And some may be self-evident, but sometimes these things are not evident. And that's why people need to read this book. So we talk about why it's important, how it can help you at work. This goes back to the humility and the transparency. We say, hey, listen, we get it. This is hard. And this is why it's hard and why you may not want to do this, been able to do this, all the above. And then we break it down into critical actions, steps, concrete steps that the reader can take. Can you give us some additional examples of some of the micro skills that you talk about in your book? Yeah, I will start with one that I think is relevant to me in my most recent days. And that is learn what your supervisors expect of you. And actually in the book, I tell a story about how I went to a lecture many years ago where it was a male speaker and he was telling a story about how he was tasked to organize socials like mixers or journal club type things during the day. And his co-fellow, a woman, was also tasked to do the same thing. And he spent like two minutes on this assignment. Like he just sent out a quick email and it was done. Didn't really even order food. And she made a beautiful invitation and got this like artisanal food and had music and everyone was personally invited. And in the end, he ultimately got hired. He sort of summarizes this story because they were both fellows that he was the one of the two who was hired because he didn't really spend time doing the tasks his supervisor didn't care about. Instead of doing all the organizational stuff, what we call non-promotable tasks in the book, he spent time doing the research, giving the talks, networking with people, doing other things that his supervisor valued. And so I think that's something that's like a favorite of mine right now, because as an advisor for our medical school, I'm sort of teaching students to understand what is expected of you. And it becomes quite relevant if you are someone who doesn't really understand that there's a difference between the work that is tasked to you and what you personally find valuable. And we talk about this other concept of non-promotable tasks, and there's a huge gendered component to that, where perhaps the woman in that scenario was told or assumed that she needed to put this energy into something else that she shouldn't have been doing. And so that to me is a really interesting concept. My favorite skills, favorite stories change day to day and conversation to conversation. One that I'll highlight is under the Micro Skills for Self-Care chapter. And this is specifically recognize the value of gratitude and demonstrate appreciation of others. And in this micro skill, I start by telling a story of working in the emergency department with an attending. And I was a resident doctor. And this woman came in and she was clearly dying of metastatic cancer. And it was very recognizable to us how terminal she was, how sick she was. And the family that came in with her definitely did not recognize how end stage and far along she was. And no one had had a conversation with her, with them. There was no consensus decision about what to do and what measures to take in terms of her wishes as she was dying. So we went into the family room and had a conversation with the family, this attending and I, and I watched him very skillfully hold this conversation and with the family, bring them to a decision where I visibly saw them feel better and feel relief, I should say. And it was remarkable. I'd never seen this type of conversation. So fast forward, I was finished with my training and I was the faculty member working in the community, no resident doctors, just me. Patient came in, had metastatic cancer, but wasn't that sick. And he and his partner, 
very friendly, very nice, very appreciative. He did get admitted to the hospital, and that was it. Three weeks later, he came to the emergency department again. I didn't recognize him. His cancer had progressed. His partner was like, hi, do you remember us? She recognized me, and I had to do a double take. There's a lot that we keep inside, we don't say outside, and keep this sort of demeanor. But it was very clear this time he was very sick. And so the same situation of the partner didn't really have that recognition and insight. She's like, well, I'm going to go. Do you think he's going to be admitted? And I realized I had to have that similar conversation. So I took her into a room, sat down, explained to her how serious it was, and gave her specific directives on what to do to sort of prepare and that he was definitely going to be admitted, et cetera. I was not working the next day. However, she came down to the emergency department to look for me and she passed on a thank you through the nursing staff and they told me. I wrote a note to that attending who had taught me how to have that skillful conversation from back in my training. And he's told me that he's kept that note and he pulls it out every once in a while to read it. And this concept of gratitude and thanking, yeah, it can be a thank you note. And I joke that growing up, I was always told I was supposed to send a thank you note. And I was like, I roll thank you note. But now there's real value in authentic note writing, but just acknowledging, thanking, and realizing that none of us are doing this alone. Everything we do is team and acknowledging that those assists and that those people that helped you along the way is really important. And those notes don't take a long time to write often, but are incredibly meaningful and impactful. And they're also really effective for the mental health of the people who write those notes. There's a lot of research suggesting that expressions of gratitude help improve the quality of life for the people who engage in that. That's exactly why it's in the self-care chapter. Bingo. And self-care, you mentioned earlier, though, a couple of things that I might have some challenges with. For example, you mentioned to give up those things that don't bring you joy. That sounds like a good deal of my day to day. For those people who are in a position where their job requires them to do tasks that may not always bring them joy, do you have any suggestions on how they can find more joy in the work that they're doing? This isn't a request for any personal advice or anything, is it, John? There's a part of work that we all have to do that is menial and feels less enthusiastic or inspired by. And I think in the book, we make a caveat, like you can't give up everything because you have to, again, go back to what your supervisor expects of you. What we really are talking about is when there's room for optional stepping down or stepping up and there's room for you to sort of voice your opinion or your objection. So if someone comes to me, like I have collaborators and peers who come to me and say, hey, would you like to join in on this project? And I don't find myself having joy in that type of work. I feel empowered to say no and focus on the things that really do bring me joy. But if my supervisor were to tell me, hey, I need you to be at work tomorrow at 9 a.m., I really couldn't look at that person and say, no, I don't want to do that because then I might lose my job. But it is a good question to ask yourself because that might mean to you that this job really isn't where you should be. If the most basic expectation of you, you don't want to do, it's a nice thing to sort of stop and pause. I do think that we have more agency and control at work than sometimes we think we do. And part of that is the self-care. If you're rested, if you have the board of directors, I love having my own board of directors, your go-to people that you can say, listen, I need to bounce this scenario by you. 
Are there any ways that you see that I can offload some of this? And people you trust, people that understand your situation, sometimes they come up with stuff. You're like, amazing. That's a great idea. So I think realizing that, like I said, when we don't feel we have agency, when we feel out of control, there's actually usually more in our, I guess they call it the sphere of influence. And actually a skill in the the micro skills for self-help chapter is about setting limits on time spent in meetings. And time expands to fill that allotted. And so we definitely think that 60-minute meetings can often be 30-minute meetings. 30-minute meetings can often be 15 to 20-minute meetings. 15 to 20-minute meetings can often be an email or a phone call. And so there is a lot of play and none of us can really, at the end of the day, we know and acknowledge, ignore our roles and responsibilities. So your book is super comprehensive. There's many micro skills in there. And for some, sitting down and reading from cover to cover might be a good strategy, (laughs) but it might also be really overwhelming having so many micro skills. Do you have some advice for how to engage with your book? This is a fantastic question. And it's almost as if you queued up. I'll start. I have one of my besties from college. She's also in academic medicine. She's a dermatologist. And she recently stepped into a leadership position. And she has been one of the beta readers. She was bowled over. She's kind of mid to late career with its applicability and accessibility. And she said, and Adair and I specifically designed the table of contents. So sure, you can read it cover to cover, but you can dip in and go to a chapter or a skill. My friend had to run a meeting. So she went directly to the micro skills on how to run a meeting. And she actually, as a part of this new leadership position, has had to have some, quote, difficult conversations. We talk about difficult conversations and conflict. So my N of one is that you can actually piecemeal and go directly to topics that are relevant to your needs. We call it just-in-time learning. So it doesn't have to be read from beginning to end in a continuous linear fashion. But it should be at an arm's length away. I think one thing that stood out to me that I know a lot of our graduate students are constantly struggling with is growing your network and how to do that. I think it's always very mysterious to people. It seems daunting. It seems scary. It might be a skill set that feels like if you're not outgoing, somehow you can't build a network. So I think that component is something that I know that my graduate students really benefit from dipping into. In that micro skill, when we talk about growing your network, we start from this premise that everybody has a network. Everybody has a network. And people may think they don't, but they do. Whether it's friends from elementary school, kids you attended clubs with when you were growing up in high school, your high school friends, your college friends, in our case, our med school friends, our residency friends, our fellowship friends, our faculty friends. And then if there's been any national experience or international experience, it just goes on and on and on and on. And one approach for people that still don't buy it, that they have a network, is you can do something simple like setting up one meeting a week, one outreach and one meeting a week with the goal of building upon that. And eventually, over time, you grow your network. And when you connect with someone organically and nicely and well, or can even be a mentor, you can ask them, is there anybody that you think I should meet? Can you introduce me? Or can I reach out and CC you or say that you told me? So Once you do it or know how to do it, it's like not a big deal. And also I have 100% been there where I'm like, I don't have a network. I don't know anybody. And then I was like, wait a minute. Oh my gosh. Okay. And this goes back to the sort of thinking back and reflecting and actually feeling rested enough to have that reflection time. And I'll just quickly add, 
that for many people, myself included, I assumed my network would be built by people coming to me and like offering to just coach me or to be my mentor. And so for many years, I didn't have a network. I would say from like 21 to like 25, for sure. So really early in my career, when I was in medical school, early residency, I didn't really have like a network or a team of people who I could turn to. And it was until really someone showed me how they network and how they reach out to other people and normalized for me that like I'm in charge and I really need to build this myself. I think there were a couple others that stood out to me in particular as well, like designing meanings to have a clear purpose. That's a skill I'd like to share with others (laughs) as well as myself. There are some things in this book that I think we all struggle to tell other people directly. And so someone, when I told them about the self-care chapter that has something about literally body odor, someone said that they felt like really relieved that we gave them guidance on how to check in with other people who might be struggling in this realm. We include uncomfortable truths that can hopefully be helpful for the reader. Like, this is how I can deal with this for someone else, for myself. And yes, the meeting, the agenda part is one too. Like if you're in meetings all the time that have no agenda, just like how to ask someone, hey, do you mind sending out an agenda so we can understand what the goals will be for this meeting? One other thing that I remember, and this also relates back to our earlier conversation on an article you had posted, was using email efficiently and encouraging other people to use email more efficiently so that you're not spending all of your time on email. Could you talk a little bit about some of your suggestions for using email for communication? This is one we get asked a lot. To your point, we've written two articles about email. One is fuel-efficient mentoring, and another on compassionate email culture. And in the book, we talk about the role of the CC line and the BCC line. And 100% email and email inbox can get out of control. And so we try to teach how people can feel in control of their email inbox and how to email in a way that is effective, communicative, and generous, not just to themselves, but to other people who are on the receiving end. So if we speak specifically about the BCC, the blind carbon copy, most people think of it as a punitive measure and it's used against people or it's used to create a paper trail. We flip that and we think actually it can be a very generous tool to use. And we think if used in that way, it can be very effective and people will embrace it. So I'll use an example. Recently, one of my friends wanted me to meet and mentor one of her younger faculty. And so she introduced us, meaning by email, she electronically introduced us. And I wrote back and I said, dear so-and-so, let's meet next week. Here are some of my specific days and times. Looking forward to it, Risa. And then right underneath my name, I wrote my friend's name in BCC. And what that meant was he knew she's seeing this, even though I can't see her, She sees that I'm closing the loop and I'm responding to your young faculty and her inbox does not get loaded with more emails when he responds to me. And again, closed loop communication. Yeah, that reply all can get really messy and BCC can really reduce that to a much more manageable level. There's so many things we could talk about because there's so many good things in the book. I was looking at a lot of them in the micro skills to build and maintain your reputation. You might have some initial thoughts about what might be in that chapter, 
but there's some really great micro skills around complaining carefully and sharing your failures to normalize humanness. So there's such a good spectrum of things. And I wish we could talk about all of them because I really would love to talk about them all. (laughs) But we always wrap up by asking what's next. Well, I think for us, next is like tomorrow and the next day. We're like on the day-to-day level right now because we are trying to spread the good message of the book and get people's feedback and see how we can continue to amplify the book through lecturing, workshops, writing articles, and those sorts of things. Yeah, we're in a really exciting period. For listeners, we're recording before the release of the book. And so we're in full-on marketing and publicity mode. We are doing exactly what Adara just shared. And we're just really hopeful that the content resonates with audiences and readers so that yeah, they buy the book, but also they want to buy the book to gift the book. And sort of there's that self-perpetuating aspect to its content being timeless and resonating with many, many, many people. I think you've been quite successful in writing a book that should resonate with pretty much everybody. We really enjoyed it. We're happy to hear that. Thank you. Definitely something for everybody, no matter their stage of their career or really what field they're in. So thank you for your work in putting this together. It's important work. Thank you. It's amazing that you do this along with all the other things that you're doing, which suggests perhaps some of those tips can lead to more efficiency in terms of how you're using your time. That's correct. And that's the goal. Well, thank you so much for having us. Thank you. It's great talking to you. And we're looking forward to your future work. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. To continue the conversation, join us on our Tea for Teaching Facebook page. You can find show notes, transcripts, and other materials on teafortteaching.com. Music by Michael Gary Brewer. Editing assistance by Ganesh.